You are listening to Sermons to Go from Advent United Methodist Church in Egan, Minnesota. This is the sermon for Sunday, December 20th, 2020, the fourth Sunday in the season of Advent. The music is provided by Chris Simonson, our reader is Pastor Eric Elkin, and preaching is Pastor Grant Spencer. Now let us prepare our hearts and minds to listen and be renewed. Modern readers of the Bible tend to read specific verses. For example, today we read verses 1 through 4 and 19 through 26 of Psalm 89. These verses are rich with imagery on their own. Rarely, though, do we consider the larger story or the placement of these verses in the Bible. Theologians who have studied the Psalms have discovered Psalm 88 and 89 are two psalms intentionally partnered together. They are the last two psalms in the third book of Psalms, a grouping of writings often marked by laments. Laments are expressions of deep grief and sorrow. These psalms cry out to God about the troubles of life and ask God to intervene. Psalm 88 is a very dark and bleak psalm spoken by an individual. It verbalizes things we've come to know. Not all prayer gets answered quickly, and not every story has a happy ending. Psalm 89, though, is a community response to the individual grieving in Psalm 88. The community reminds the grieving psalmist of the steadfast love of God. The words remind those who grieve, You are not alone. You are not unloved. Even the greatest people, like King David, had troubles. And even when David sinned, God did not abandon him. Maybe you are grieving over something taken from you this day. If you are, then open your ears to hear of God's love, a love we can all expect to receive. Now let us listen to Psalm 89, verse 1 through 4 and 19 through 26. I will sing of the Lord's love forever. I will proclaim your faithfulness with my own mouth from one generation to the next. That's why I say your loyal love is rightly built forever. You establish your faithfulness in heaven. You said, I made a covenant with my chosen one. I promised my servant David, 
I will establish your offspring forever. I will build up for your throne from one generation to the next. Once you spoke in a vision to your faithful servants. I placed a crown on a strong man. I raised up someone specially chosen from the people. I discovered my servant David. I anointed him with holy oil. My hand will sustain him. Yes, my arm will strengthen him. No enemy will oppress him. No wicked person will make him suffer. I will crush all his foes in front of him. I will strike down all those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loyal love will be with him. He will be strengthened by my name. I will set his hand on the sea. I will set a strong hand on the rivers. He will cry out to me, You are my Father, my God, the rock of my salvation. Your love, God, is my song, and I will sing it. With this sermon, we've reached the end of the Advent sermon series. Uh, And what a series it's been. We've talked about expecting joy, expecting hope, expecting peace. And it falls to me to share some reflections about expecting love. And Psalm 89 was chosen as the scripture for uh, for this sermon. And Psalms are a very special type of scriptures. They're not really like the narrative scriptures that we get preached on a lot. They're not great philosophical or theological treaties like some of the letters and prophetic writings uh, tend to be. Uh, They have a special category all on their own. They're actually called wisdom. They're wisdom scriptures. And uh, they would share that distinction with things like the Proverbs, uh, uh, Job is another great one, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. They all fit into this category of wisdom scriptures. And while some might rightfully say that Psalms are prayers, I am absolutely sure that some, if not most of them, were actually sung. Psalms are songs. And before the Song of Mary, before the Song of Isaiah, There were these songs, and they were sung. Now, while I won't be singing, I would like to start my sermon with with a little dissident chord. Now, I love Miss Ariel, and I'd hate to do this to her, but it's very unlikely that Jesus and her share the same birth month. It's very unlikely that Jesus was born on December 25th. I hope that idea is not uh, shocking to anybody. Now, maybe you have that one friend out there who's trying to maybe rub you the wrong way or, or, or challenge you or shock you or maybe just educate you. Maybe you've got that one friend that goes off and says, you know, Christmas is on a pagan holiday. I know I get that at least once in a while on Facebook, especially uh, as we get nearer to Christmas. Now, they actually do have a point. Christmas as we know it, as the celebration of Christ's birth, didn't actually exist until around 300 or so AD. Just before that, there was another celebration uh, that the Romans actually had on that day. That Roman celebration was, uh, and you'll forgive my Latin here, Dies Natalius Solus Invicti, which uh, apparently translates to the birth of the unconquered son. 
Now, for 10,000 years, my ancestors noticed that there were times that in the year where the days started to get shorter. The nights started to get longer. The dark of nights started to get longer, and temperatures got colder and colder. The leaves fell, and everything seemed to be almost certainly coming to an end. And I would think that would be a pretty scary time, especially when they didn't understand the basics of cosmology like most Americans do. And then there would come a day when finally the sun would come back. First, the days would start to get longer, the nights would get shorter, the temperatures warmed, the sun had returned. And this is at the heart of that particular solstice celebration. Now, while I don't think we really should worship the sun, I do think it's a shame that most of us are not actually in awe of this giant controlled nuclear explosion in our sky. An explosion so hot that we can actually feel its heat 92 million miles away. Now, how terrifying it must have been for our ancestors when the sun's power seemed to weaken, when the darkness and cold seemed to be winning and life as they knew it was on the verge of being snuffed out. And how joyful it must have been for our ancestors when they started to feel the sun's power strengthen, when the darkness started to become overcome with the light, when they knew the ravages of winter would be melted away and their livelihood, the plants, the animals, would return. The return of the sun meant the return of light light overcoming the darkness. And it's no surprise then, when well over 300 years past the life of Jesus, our faith ancestors, when looking back for a time to celebrate the birth of God's Son and what it meant to them, the return of God's light to drive away the darkness, to bring life over death, it's no surprise that they would choose this time of the solstice. What better time to celebrate the birth of the Christian Savior Savior, than during the birth of the unconquered sun. Now, while some may view that move as sort of a political, a Christian agenda uh, move, and, and there is likely some elements of that, we should not ignore what that move tells us about what our faith ancestors felt Jesus was. For me, celebrating the birth of Jesus on December 25th remains a beautiful witness of celebrating the birth of the unconquered sun. The shaft of light piercing the darkness, spreading warmth in the cold, a victory of life over death, God bursting into the history, into history, sorry, in the person of Jesus to deliver us from darkness, destruction, and death. Now, I hope that helps next time you have someone say, you know, you're really celebrating a pagan holiday. You see, God's love is your song, and this Christmas, I hope you will sing it. Like these celebrations, our faith ancestors, when wrestling with the experience with Jesus, wrestling with their experiences with Jesus, they searched the scriptures. Surely, they thought, his song, Jesus' song, was sung before, and they found his song in Isaiah. As Eric preached about last week, they found his song in the, in the songs of the prophets. And they found his song in the Psalms, a whole book of songs. Now, whether uh, there are definitely more academic approaches to this, 
but I will say that you can group the Psalms basically into two buckets. You have praise and you have laments. And like most things, it's not really that black and white. And some Psalms, like the one that we actually did today, uh, actually has elements of both in it. We just happen to hear the praise part. And and you can actually even break those buckets up even further. But Psalms, they're, they're, they're poetry. They're oral poetry. And I would encourage you to actually sit with a Psalm for an extended period of time. Read it aloud. Again, they are oral. Read it aloud. What words jump out at you? Maybe the next time you read that same psalm, other words might jump out at you. There's a reason why people for thousands of years have fled to the psalms and buried themselves in those words. There's a reason why our faith ancestors would pick this psalm and some others when thinking about Jesus. Now, this psalm wasn't on my top ten list until I spent about a month with it trying to prepare for this sermon. But there are some themes and ideas that rose out of those words. One of them being, your love, God, is my song, and I will sing it. I will never quit telling the story of your love. And the psalm goes on to say a little bit about how God's love is built into the fabric of the cosmos. Now, while the earliest words for this was actually the heavens, I don't think it's much of a stretch to talk about the love of God being built into the fabric of the universe itself. Had the psalmist actually known the science behind this, they would have gone on to say it was the love is built into the smallest subatomic particles to the great galactic superclusters that we know. The writer here is truly talking about a cosmic view of God's love. And uh, God's love, which is why it's so striking that right after this cosmic view, this cosmic love joins forces with David, the first anointed king of Israel, the first Messiah. This psalm goes on to list all the cool stuff that will eventually happen uh, uh, with David, and even goes so far as to say uh, that um, that God's uh, that God's love is preserved with David eternally. Now, right at the surface of this psalm, there is a lot of expectation. The first singers were expecting a song of love. Now, as we know, it's not all rainbows and butterflies for David's kingdom after this period. There were great divisions. They were conquered over and over again. And by the time of Jesus, these are people living under the brutal occupation of Rome. It was a dark time. And yet in this darkness, a person breaks in with such a beautiful, powerful message that 2,000 years later, the world continues to vibrate with that message. Now, a, a quick aside. Pretty regularly I'm confronted with some pretty horrible theology. Now, by the way, that's my judgment, whether it's horrible. But, it's uh, it, you know, in my defense, I have actually thought about this a lot. Uh, and one of the most irksome recurring themes I, I hear sometimes brought to me is, the Old Testament God is a God of judgment and wrath. The New Testament God is a God of love. Now, friends, that's an old font. It goes right back to the beginning of the Christian church. And every time that comes up, it gets some traction. And then the church typically rises up and squashes it because it's simply not true. And I really push this on my confirmation students. 
even in this psalm, written before the Gospels of Jesus, written before Paul's letters, written before even Isaiah, we have these lines from verse 30. And it goes on to say, in verse 30, If David's children refuses to do what I'll tell them, if they refuse to walk in the way I show them, I being God, if they spit on the directions I give them and tear up the rules I post for them, I'll rub their faces in the dirt of their rebellion and make them face the music. Now that could sound a little wrathful, but it also sounds a little bit like parenting, speaking as a parent who has got children now old enough to do things. So it sounds a little harsh, I'll give it that, but the next bit is the important part. God saying, but I'll never throw them out. I will never abandon or disown them. Do you think I'd withdraw my holy promise or take back words I'd already spoken? In the Old Testament, we'd have again and again a God of mercy and a God of love. And when our Christian ancestors were looking for Jesus in these scriptures, they fixed on this psalm, among others. They fixed on the idea that as God's relationship was with David, they saw that relationship with Jesus. And then this relationship is now open to each and every one of us. To them, Jesus would never throw them out, never abandon or disown them. To them, and hopefully to us, God's love is never contingent on what we do or what we fail to do. It is not wrong to expect that love. God wants us to expect that love. Now friends, as I record this, it is a dark time. The days are getting shorter, the nights are long and cold, and personally, I could tell you this could be a sad metaphor for many of our lives. A couple of days ago, I asked a young college student, how's it going? And she said, good. I said to her, how can it possibly be going good for you? I know it's all a matter of perspective, and I do believe, by the way, that life is not what happens to you, but how you react to it. I, 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 I stand by that. But this young lady, she's had COVID. She's paying big bucks to go to a private college in Manhattan, yet she's now, of course, thanks to COVID, doing the same college courses in her house. She's isolated from her friends. She's isolated from her extended family. She's even had her grandfather pass away and was unable to go to the grandfather's service as it was in another state and there were travel restrictions. People have lost jobs. People have lost relationships. People even have had their own ministries strained to breaking point. It is dark. I recently had a youth pastor from another tradition say to me, they don't really get Advent. I don't get Advent. And I said that, man, if you don't get it now, you never will. COVID's blessing to all of us is that it's given us a taste as to what it is like to live in hope during the dark periods of history. We live in a hope that the vaccine will come and free us from our captivity, restore us uh, our relationships, and return our lives to some sense of wholeness and healing. I mean, does that sound familiar? How can anyone not understand Advent, Christian or not, after all of this? We are a people walking in darkness, 
and we have seen a great light. We can now empathize with the author of that line, whether they were writing it during the Babylonian conquest, referring to it during the Roman occupation, or even channeling it during the civil rights marches. The gift of our time and place is that now globally, we all understand Advent. And that is why during Advent, in our hearts, we will cry, your love, God, is our song, and we will sing it. Because we will be a people of hope. We will be a people of peace. We will be a people of joy because we are a people of love. We are an Advent people expected to bring God's love to all the dark places of the earth. Have a blessed Advent. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, as we continue our Advent journey, we are reminded that love came down at Christmas. Love, amazing love, divine. You love the world enough to send your Son, and now it's up to us to love others as you would have us love. Remind us that Christ is our light and the source of infinite and everlasting pure love. Amen. Thank you for listening to Sermons to Go from Advent United Methodist Church in Egan, Minnesota. You can watch the complete service on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Advent UMC Egan. Thank you, and we hope to have you back with us again.